Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. Good to see all of you on this finally bright, sunny day. We got the sun. We just need the heat. So, uh, yeah, I echo that prayer request that Andrea said. Let's pray that God will just overcome the New York meteorologist because that's really not that hard as far as I'm concerned because they're always wrong anyway. But let's pray that they're wrong and that there will be no snow. Uh, But all kidding aside, welcome yet again to our service, especially if this may be your first or second time here at our church. And if you are considering the claims of Christianity, if you are someone considering the claims of Jesus and you're here investigating, pondering, wondering if what Jesus says about himself is actually true, we hope and pray that our time together will not only be able to help you answer that question, but even get you to be more curious to a point where you would even consider that indeed he is who he claims to be. And so without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads just one more time as we ask the Lord to bless our sermon. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we come before you. We ask that you would speak into our hearts. Lord, in spite of all the difficulties, whatever trials and tribulations that we've had to face these past six days, Lord, we now come to you as your beloved children, holding on to the promise that you would speak to us and through your word, that it would bring transformation and renewal to our hearts, our minds, and even to our, uh, our wounds and our weaknesses and our sicknesses. Oh God, we believe there is power in the word for it does bring dead people to life and it brings transformation where there is no power in the flesh to bring about. And so Father, would you now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Once upon a time, happily ever after. Those are the words, as a father of four, frequently come out of my lips every night right before I tuck my children to bed. It comes out of my mouth practically every single night, and it turns out that our kids really enjoy that it does. They love hearing those words and all the ones that go in between because like clockwork after brushing their teeth, they always ask, Daddy, can you read to me a story? Now, perhaps it's been a while since anyone has ever said to you those words, you know, 
be, uh, once upon a time, happily ever after. But don't let the absence of those words in your life currently ever cause you to conclude that you've somehow outgrown of your need for stories like you have with Flintstone vitamins. Oh, no, 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 no. Stories are, yes, vital to us in the mental development of our lives as children. But as growing adults, we need stories just as much, maybe even more, so that we would understand the purpose and meaning of life. Consider these wise words from a professor of English literature at Bethel College by the name of Dr. Daniel Taylor. Listen to what he says about the power of stories. He says this, quote, Our greatest desire, greater even than the desire for happiness, is that our lives mean something. This desire for meaning is the originating impulse of story. We tell stories because we hope to find or create significant connections between things. Stories link past, present, and future in a way that tells us where we have been, where we are, and where we could be going. Our stories teach us that there is a place for us, that we fit, that suggests to us that our lives can have a plot. Stories turn mere chronology, one thing after another, into the purposeful action of plot and thereby into meaning. If we discern a plot to our lives, we are more likely to take ourselves and our lives more seriously. If nothing is connected, then nothing matters. Stories are the single best way humans have for accounting for our experience. They help us see how choices and events are tied together, why things are and how things could be. Healthy stories challenge us to be active characters, not passive victims or observers. If we see ourselves as active characters in our own stories, we can exercise our human freedom to choose a present and future for ourselves and for those we love that gives life meaning. In other words, stories help us understand who we are, our identity, as well as what we are to do, our purpose, our mission in life, which probably explains why Jesus told more stories throughout his teaching ministry than any other pedagogical form. And so given that we all consider ourselves, or at least most of us would consider ourselves to be genuine followers of Jesus, to where it is fitting for us to know what our master says, who we are and what we are to do, We're beginning a new sermon series entitled The Parables of Jesus, The Parables of Jesus or The Stories of Jesus. And we kick off this series by taking a look at the parable known as the parable of the ten virgins. And why are we beginning with this story? Well, Jesus wants to warn us of a particular sin that he finds especially disgusting. Jesus wants to warn us in this parable, this story, of a particular sin he finds especially disgusting. And you're thinking to yourself, what? Especially disgusting? There's a sin that Jesus is especially disgusted with? That's new. That's intriguing. I've heard of sins that make Jesus especially angry. But what sort of sin would make Jesus especially disgusted? Could you kind of give us a sneak peek, Pastor John? Can you tell us right away what this sin is? Well, sure. It's the sin that the medieval theologians once referred to as Acadia. The sin of Acadia, and you're thinking, it's like, I never heard of that sin. Well, sure you have, but you're just more familiar with this more popular synonym, sloth, the sin of sloth. Jesus wants to warn us about the hideous sin that he finds repulsive and disgusting, the sin of sloth, and why we need to avoid it if we consider ourselves to be followers of Christ. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, what sloth is. Number two, why sloth is deadly. And number three, how we can be freed from sloth. What it is, why it's deadly, and how we can be free from it. 
Okay, let's jump right in. First, what sloth is. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the seven deadly sins, maybe you're thinking about that old Brad Pitt movie that came out in the 90s, right? You know that sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. And for most people, when they think of the sin of sloth, they simply think it means physical laziness, right? And sure enough, for those of you who grew up going to church, especially Korean churches, if your pastor or youth group pastor taught you about the sin of sloth, that was most likely his singular focus, right? Right? Because they think, most people in the church think, that the sin of sloth is merely the sin of laziness. And as proof of this idea, they would cite passages like Proverbs chapter 6, where it reads as follows, starting in verse 9. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. And so... Pastors will take passages like this and they'll preach sermons about how God hates it when you're lazy. And they'll always admonish you, don't waste your life playing hours of video games. Don't waste hours of your life being a couch potato. Or don't waste days of your life just aimlessly surfing the internet or going on Facebook or doing all this like superficial things. right? And they'll constantly challenge us to be differently. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with sermons like that. Because it is true, God does not like us being lazy. He wants us to be good steward of our time, of our lives. But it is a mistake to conclude that sloth is simply the sin of laziness. laziness excuse me. It is that, but it's so much more than that. In fact, one of the best definitions that I came across that really helps us understand and pinpoints what sloth is and why it's so evil is from Dorothy Sayers, the great English writer. Listen to how she defines sloth. She says this, quote, Sloth is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. That's a good one, isn't it? You see, sloth is a spiritual condition where you look at the world and your only reaction is, whatever, so what? Right? It's that weird nebulous combination of boredom, cynicism, depression, despair, and loneliness that mix together and cause you to feel like your life is either bland or stuck or both at the same time. And we see a clear example of this sort of behavior, this sinfulness known as sloth in the story of the 10 virgins. Now, just so you don't misread this passage, okay, I want you to make sure you don't misunderstand what Jesus is implicitly implying. When Jesus tells a story about 10 virgins, he is not in any way endorsing this idea of polygamy. Okay, by telling this story, he is not giving us permission to marry multiple wives. Sorry, guys. Okay, and you know why? Because the virgins in these stories, they're not the bride. They're the bridesmaids. The virgins are bridesmaids of the bride. Okay. See, in the ancient world, weddings were pretty much an all-day event where usually you would have the couple getting married early on in the day, and then right after the ceremony, they would separate. The wife would go back to her parents' house, and the husband would go back to his parents' house because, after all, this is probably going to be the last time that he's going to be under their authority. He's going to leave and cleave, and during that time, he's paying his respects to his parents and to his relatives. And then when evening comes, he goes back to his in-laws where his new wife is waiting for him as well as... These virgins, the bridesmaids, with bright torches so that they could escort in the dark of night the husband, the new wife, to the place where they will have the wedding celebration and have festive 
joy. Okay, so that is what's happening here. Now, in this particular story, Jesus says that five of these ten virgins were very wise, and the other five were very foolish. And the reason why the five were foolish is because of what he says, starting in verse 2. Can we have our passage where we read as follows? Five of them were foolish, and five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Jesus calls five of these ten absolutely foolish. And when you first read the reason why, you can't help but to think, wow, Jesus, aren't you being a little bit harsh on these poor five girls? Aren't you being a little bit above and beyond cruel by being so condemning and so judgmental by calling them fools? I mean, for what? For forgetting some oil? I mean, hello, Jesus, have you never been in a wedding? Have you never been part of a wedding party? Right? For those of you guys in here who've been part of a wedding party or for those of you who can remember your own wedding, you know that was a chaotic day. Am I right? Where even after months of planning and preparation on the day of, you're going to forget something. Right? You may, I've been in situations where the groom's best man forgot the rings. No joke. Right? Nobody here, thankfully. Right? Because that would have been bad. But I've had situations where I've been part of officiating a wedding where the guy forgot to bring his best friend's rings, right? As much as we want it to be a perfect day, as much as we plan for it to be a perfect day, it's not always a perfect day, very rarely. And of course, even to this day, people would lament about how that day was ruined because some, something didn't go the way it planned. But of course, it happens. It's not intentional. Far from it. And so when you understand that is the reality of the chaos of weddings, we think, why is Jesus being so harsh? Why is Jesus being so cruel to these five girls from what seems to be simply an honest mistake? The answer is it's because it wasn't an honest mistake. These girls were not making an honest mistake. And how do I know that? Because of what it says in verse 5. Read again what it says there. If I could find verse, oh, there it is. As the bridegroom was delayed, They all became drowsy and slept. Now, for some reason why we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, the bridegroom was delayed in coming, okay? He was taking his time or he got caught up. Something got in his way. He couldn't make it at a time where everyone was expecting. He was delayed. And so what do these girls do? They fall asleep. Now, you would think that if there was ever a perfect time for these five girls who didn't bring oil to go out and get oil, it would have been now. This would have been the perfect opportunity, really the only opportunity for them to see, okay, he is not coming. Our oil is starting to burn out. We better go out and get some before he gets here, right? And of course, they don't do that. They get drowsy. Let me tell you, when a wedding is chaotic, right, and you're really trying to make sure everything goes to plan, you don't get drowsy. You are focused, Right? You're not just twiddling your thumbs. You're making sure, okay, did this happen? Did this happen? You're trying to make sure everything goes to plan. And the fact that they got drowsy when they know there was a real pressing need tells us something was absolutely off. This was not an honest mistake. See, and I think this is a very important, important point that we need to understand. I want you to pay attention. The only explanation that can explain why these five virgins didn't go get the oil when they had the chance to do so is why. They doubted the coming of the bridegroom. Let me say that again. The only explanation that can explain the behavior of these five foolish virgins is because they were doubting the coming of the bridegroom. 
See, this is not the case of some girls making some honest mistakes. It's not even the case of them simply being physically lazy. It's much deeper than that. These five virgins were not prepared because they did not believe that the bridegroom was going to come for his bride. See, you only prepare for something when you are confident that the thing that you're preparing for is actually going to happen. And the fact that they weren't prepared clearly indicates they had no confidence, they had no faith that the one that they were preparing for, they actually were not prepared for because they really didn't believe he was on his way. And because of that, they were slothful. Now, the reason why I say that these girls were slothful is because this is a parable, okay? This is a story of Jesus. And usually in parables, one character represents God, which in this case is the bridegroom, and the other characters represent people, humanity, right? Which in this case are the ten virgins. So when you have virgins not having faith in the coming of the bridegroom, that is Jesus' simply way of describing a portion of mankind's lack of faith in the coming of God. And in fact, that's exactly how ancient Christians understood the sin of sloth. They saw fundamentally the sin of sloth as our lack of confidence, our lack of faith that God is going to come for us like a way a bridegroom would come for his bride. In fact, listen to how one theologian, a 15th century Russian saint by the name of Neil Sorsky, how he describes it. He says this, quote, When a man suffers from sloth, he will be tempted to think that he has been deserted by God, that God has no longer any care over him, leaving him utterly alone. This thought overwhelms him, and he gives up hope. He no longer holds out in the belief that God will visit him anew in the future. He no longer waits on God. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're like, "Uh, Pastor, I don't think I believe you're interpreting this passage correctly. Because the way that you're interpreting it, it doesn't make sense. Because if these five foolish virgins really believed that the bridegroom wasn't going to come, why are they still there? (laughs) Why are they waiting along with the other wise virgins? If they really believe in their heart of hearts, right, that the bridegroom wasn't going to come, why are they still sticking around? Why don't they just go home and sleep in their own comfortable beds? That's a great point. And to explain, let me go to my next point, why sloth is deadly. Can we have our definition from Dorothy Sayers up there again, her definition of sloth? Let me read it to you one more time and see if you can capture what I'm about to say. Sloth is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. Now, if you listen carefully to how she is defining sloth, you will notice there's an emerging theme of indifference, right? To on the one hand, a person who has sloth doesn't love anything, but yet at the same time, it doesn't hate anything. To on the one hand, it's not hoping anything, but it's also not despising anything in despair. In other words, sloth by its very nature is a contradiction, which means the person who is slothful in many ways is a walking contradiction to where a person who has sloth, particularly someone who claims to be a believer of God, a part of them will say, yes, I yearn for God. And yet a part of them will also despise God because they think God does not want them or They'll have this sense of opposing inner conflict where a part of them feels like they're not far from God, but they're not close to God either. You know, the Bible has a word to describe this kind of spiritual condition other than sloth. You know what it is? Lukewarm. Lukewarm, a person who is neither hot nor cold, neither passionate or passionless, okay? And the Bible makes it clear that God does not like a lukewarm person. 
You know how much he doesn't like it? It gets to the point where he wants to vomit. Here's the proof. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 15, we read, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, or excuse me, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out. In the original Greek, it means vomit, right? This is where Greek is helpful. I'm about to vomit you out, right, out of my mouth. God hates it when we are lukewarm. He finds it disgusting. It's kind of like that cup of coffee that's been laid out for about five hours. So it's no longer piping hot, warming your body. But it's not also refreshingly ice cold on a hot summer day. It's just that nasty, lukewarm coffee. You take a sip, you're like, you just want to vomit it out because it is so disgusting. Neither hot nor cold. It is repulsive. That is how God sees the lukewarm slash slothful person. It is describing the contradicting, almost interconflicted uh, battle within a person who is struggling with sloth. Right? And it's because of this, this kind of interconflicted condition that a slothful person is to where they yearn for God, but not really, that they are kind of like suffering from some sort of autoimmune disease, kind of like HIV, where because your own inner conflicts are diminishing your spiritual vitality, you're more prone to sort of falling into certain sort of spiritual sickness. In other words, some sort of spiritual sins. In fact, how, listen to how one theologian describes sloth. He describes it like it's spiritual HIV. He says this, sloth is the breakdown of the spiritual immune system, leaving the slothful person open to sins, which put him further and further away from God. What is this man saying? He's saying, when you're in the condition of sloth, you are in a weakened spiritual condition that makes you open to sins that would make you more and more worthy of being under God's judgment, under God's condemnation. I mean, consider the story and how it goes towards the end. The bridegroom comes, and he is led by the five wise virgins. Why? Because the other five virgins who are foolish, they're gone. They're scrambling. They're trying to get oil somewhere. They're going to different stores, see, that are open, right? And they're pathetically trying to get oil Meanwhile, the five faithful virgins are leading the bridegroom and the bride to the new home, and they get to the man's house. And what does the bridegroom do? He closes the doors, he locks it, he secures the gate, and then presumably hours later, the unfaithful, foolish virgins are pounding on the door. And then what are they saying? Sir, sir, please let us in. Starting in verse 11, we hear his response. It says this, afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. You see that phrase, I do not know you? That's a very scary phrase because in the Bible, it tells us that that is the phrase God is going to tell people who will not enter into his kingdom, right? In other words, it is a statement that God will make for those who are destined to hell, those who will come under his wrath, under his judgment. And you hear like, whoa, pastor, that just sounds so extreme. That seems so overreacting. Why? But you have to understand what the sin of sloth is. The sin of sloth gets you in a sort of spiritual invalidness that exposes you to greater and greater sins that make you so condemnable because think about it when you are struggling with sloth you first start off by saying you know i know what the right thing to do is but i have no energy to do it or i want to be more faithful to god and yet you don't find yourself even motivated to be more faithful to god and you stay in that condition long enough 
what ends up happening? You end up much worse than that. And what is that? Look at verse 8. This is the foolish virgin's statement to the wise virgins. Listen to what they say there. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. What are they doing? (laughs) Do you see what they're doing? See, this is the outcome of staying in a slothful state. You end up putting your responsibility to God onto other people. Like it's someone else's responsibility, right? To make sure that you are fulfilling your duties, your responsibilities, your calling to God, right? It's almost to the point where you can read in that statement like, uh, can't you see that we need some of your oil? Give it to us. It's almost as if they have this entitlement. It's like, you're the reason why I cannot fulfill my duties because you're not willing to share your oil, right? It's this mindset that puts all the onus of your responsibility to God onto somebody else, which means if you're not as faithful to God as you know you should be, it's not your fault. It's someone else's fault, right? I cannot tell you how as a pastor I've encountered this numerous and numerous times, sometimes in this church. You know, sometimes I'll say to a person, you know, I wish I could see you more on Sundays. You know, the Lord's Day where we come together and they would say something like, you know, Pastor, I know I should come to church. But, you know, to be honest, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, people at NCF, they're just so hypocritical. They're so two-faced. You know, I, I really can't be around people like that. Like, okay, so you're saying you're going to be more authentic by violating the fourth commandment? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They say, oh, you know, Pastor, I know I should serve, but you know what? Every time I serve, people don't appreciate me. They don't acknowledge me, so, you know, why bother? Or, you know, Pastor, I know I should tithe, you know, but I know there are people at that church who make way more, way more money than I do, and I know they don't tithe a cent. Why should I tithe? You see what's happening? People who struggle with sloth long enough put all the onus on other people, even to the point of even blaming other people for their personal unfaithfulness to God. You know how God sees that? He sees that as an utter slap in the face. He sees that as not only sinful, but as condemnable, worthy of condemnation, worthy of you, if that is you, hearing, I never knew you. Because if I knew you, you would not think that way. You would not behave that way, right? So here's the question, Christian. How do we make sure that this isn't us? How do we make sure that we don't fall into this sin, this condition known as sloth? And the answer leads me to my final point, how we can be free from sloth. Let's pick it back up in the middle of our passage, starting in verse 6. And we're going to take it all the way down to verse 9. Follow along as I read. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now again, when you start off at verse 6, you originally originally read it and you're thinking to yourself, wow, these wise virgins, they're so mean. How come they're not willing to share? Wow, how can they be so selfish? But of course, if you keep reading down to verse 9, you know why they don't share. They're basically saying, uh, if we gave oil to you, we cannot do what we came here to do. We don't have enough oil then to take the bridegroom to the celebration. So no, we're not going to give it to you. See, the point that Jesus is trying to teach us in the interaction between the foolish and the wise virgin isn't so much that the wise are not willing to share, but more why they're not willing to share. See, what makes the wise virgin wise 
It's because they have what the foolish don't. They have confidence. They have faith that the bridegroom is going to come for his bride. They have assuredness in them to where it manifests in certain physical behaviors like not willing to share the oil. Okay? And friends, this is how we overcome sloth. This is how we overcome this sort of spiritual apathy. We must be confident that the bridegroom is going to come for the bride. And what that means practically for you, Christian, is you must have confidence that Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming for you as a member of the church. Here's the question. Do you, Christian, do you have confidence, do you have faith that your bridegroom, that your Jesus is going to come for you? Now, some of you are hearing that, and your honest answer is going to be, I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know what that means, Pastor John. What does that mean to say that I'm waiting for Jesus to come for me? I just don't know. Can you help me out? Well, let me try by telling you a funny story I once heard. Um, A Sunday school teacher began his class asking this question. Class, who in here wants to go to heaven right now? Raise your hand. And almost immediately all the kids raise their hand pointing to the ceiling except for one little boy, little Johnny, okay? And the teacher seeing this said to Johnny, uh, Johnny, uh, don't you want to go to heaven? And the little boy is like obviously pensive and he's struggling through all this. And he goes, well, yeah, I, I, I think so. And the teacher goes, well, why didn't you raise your hand? And this is what little Johnny said. Well, teacher, I got to be honest. Um, my mom made chocolate cake tonight for dessert, and I was hoping to get a slice. <laughs> you know, that's a funny story, and yet it accurately portrays our attitude when it comes to heaven, right? Heaven. Yeah, heaven. You know that place, the place that the Apostle John vividly describes in the book of Revelation over and over. In fact, consider this description that he makes of heaven in Revelation 19. Starting in verse 6, we read, Then I, John, heard again what sounded like a shout of vast crowds or the roars of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb and he added these are true words that come from God wow isn't that interesting the apostle John is describing heaven like a great wedding feast very similar to the way Jesus is describing the parable within the ten virgins isn't that interesting isn't that coincidental no Not at all. Heaven is what is being represented in the wedding feast of this parable. And in that funny little Sunday school story I just told you, little Johnny, it turns out, would prefer cake over heaven. The little man prefers comfort food over being in the great cosmic wedding feast. Now, maybe for some of you guys, you don't like comfort food. But I'm willing to bet all of you in here like comfort a lot maybe even love it obsessively. If I had to take an educated guess of what the main priority for most of us in this room is, is for our ability to be comfortable for a prolonged period of time where we can enjoy and be at ease so that we won't have to be overwhelmed with the pressures and stresses of life, whether it's eating chocolate cake, whether it's binge watching on your favorite show on Netflix, or whether it's simply just sleeping. 
right? If I had to take an educated guess, I would imagine that all of us in here, including myself, that the greatest priority evidenced by how we act is our own comfort, okay? Now, please don't misunderstand what I am saying. I am not in any way saying that being comfortable or pursuing comfort in and of itself is evil or wrong. In fact, our passage tells us that it's not. Take a look again at starting in verse 5. Listen to what it says. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Who also was sleeping besides the five foolish virgins? The wise ones too, right? They were enjoying the comfort of sleep as well. And so we ask ourselves, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, then why does... The bridegroom condemned the foolish ones. He condemns them not because they were sleeping per se, but because they prioritized the comfort of their sleep ahead of their responsibility to the bridegroom. Do you get that? You see, there is nothing wrong with wanting to be comfortable or even being comfortable. But there's something absolutely wrong as Christians when we put our priority for comfort ahead of our responsibility to God and our relationship with God. Let me say that again. There is nothing wrong with being comfortable or being comfortable, but there's something absolutely wrong when followers of Jesus put their priority of comfort ahead of their relationship with God and their responsibility to God. Why? Well, think about it. If your priority for comfort goes in front of your relationship with God, and part of what defines your relationship with God is that he is your Lord, you submit your life to him, but comfort is still a greater priority than that, that means your comfort never comes under the authority of Christ. He has no right. He has no authority to speak to you or against you in terms of the things that you pursue for the sake of comfort. And because that is true, that affects your responsibility to God, right? Because if you feel that God has no right, has no say in determining how you should be comfortable or what you should be comfortable in, that affects the kinds of things in which you pursue for comfort to where it takes time away from your duties. You know, one of the main responsibilities that we have to God is to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? This is why you find in Scripture countless of commands of caring for the poor, advocating for the weak, pursuing justice and mercy for widows, orphans, right, and elderly. But if comfort is above your relationship with God, to where it's also therefore above your responsibility to God, that means your comfort is more important than the needs of those around you. To where at, at best you'll be indifferent when you see people around you suffering, right? Because you don't want to sacrifice your comfort just to help someone out. Or at worst, you'll actually be a perpetuator of suffering so that you can be comfortable. All because at its root, you have no faith that your bridegroom is coming for you, that you have no faith that Jesus is coming for you. If you want to have a practical litmus test of knowing whether or not you struggle with sloth, whether you really believe that your Jesus is coming for you, simply ask this question. Do I prioritize my comfort ahead of my relationship with God and my responsibilities to God? Just ask yourself that question. Do I put my comfort ahead of my relationship with God and my responsibilities to God. If you do, Scripture says you are a fool and you are worthy of condemnation. But you know what? There's good news because there is the gospel. What is the gospel? 
The gospel is the good news that says, even though all of us in here are a bunch of lukewarm sloths, right? Evidenced by the fact that we always put our comfort ahead of our relationship with God and our responsibilities to God, God nevertheless loved us so much. You know why? Because he was willing to suffer the worst suffering any human could ever suffer, which meant he was willing to be the most uncomfortable person of all. Why? So that he could have a relationship with you. So that he could stay faithful to his responsibility to you. An image, make, an image bearer of his. Where he is your heavenly father. Where he will protect you and provide for you. Even though your sins say you shouldn't receive such grace. Right? The gospel teaches us that our God is willing to be the most uncomfortable of all. Because he's willing to prioritize ahead of his comfort. His relationship with you, and therefore he prioritizes his relationship to you to be your God. Rather than just letting you just fade away for all eternity into hell. That's what the gospel teaches us. See, all the disgust, all the hatred that Jesus had towards our slothfulness, to our spiritual apathy, to our spiritual lack of faith that he is coming for us. He suffered the full punishment for it on the cross so that you would know without a doubt even though he shouldn't come for you he is on his way for you now the question is do you believe that do you believe that when you understand the extent of how much our god loves us how much he's willing to put aside to have us in a relationship to fulfill his responsibilities to us That is when you wake up and that's when you get energized and that's when sloth becomes no longer a problem for you or for me. It all boils down to this. Do you believe your Jesus is coming for you? Evidenced by the fact that you're willing to put your relationship with him and your responsibilities to him ahead of your comforts and for the comforts of your family. At this time, I want to kind of give you some next steps, some practical applications for you to think through so that today's message will not fall on deaf ears, but instead enable you to live out through your hands and your feet the message of today. And it begins with this. Number one, for those of you who are not a Christian, and today's message really got you thinking to a point where you are now considering the claims of Christ and you're ready to receive him as Christ and Lord. Take this time now to go before the Lord and ask for him to be the Lord of your life. Ask for forgiveness of your sins to where you turn away from him and you're willing to make him the king of your life. To where you're willing to put your relationship with him ahead of your priority for comfort. To where you're willing to put your responsibilities that you now have to him ahead of your own desire for comfort. And number two, for the rest of us, set aside 20 to 40 minutes this week. And I want you to identify the people, places, things, and achievements. Basically all encompasses the things that make us comfortable. And come up with one or two ways in which you can prioritize your relationship with God ahead of those things, okay? Just come up with one to two practical things that you can do so that you can actually try and prioritize God over your comfort. Number three, when you meet up with your Oikos group members this week, share what you just did in number two and ask for prayer, ask for accountability, and be willing to hold other people accountable. And You're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not in an Oikos group. What do I do? Well, number four is for you. Join an Oikos group, okay? I was thinking of you guys as well. 
We have five right now. We have three in the pipeline, three awesome sisters who will be leading uh, three Oikos groups, right? Sign up and join. Go to the planning center, talk to Pastor James, join and be a part of the Oikos group so that you can have a tangible means of living out not only today's message, but every message that comes from God's word. Let's spend some time now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to live out this calling of being people who wait faithfully for the bridegroom. Lord, for many of us, we have lost confidence. We have seen the delay. We have waited and waited and waited, and we wonder whether or not we are waiting in vain. And in the meantime, this world is tempting us to choose comfort over faithful waiting. Father, we ask that you would enable us by your grace to live in faith, not by what we can see, but by what we know, evidenced by what we hear in the gospel, that the great bridegroom sets aside his comfort in order to have his bride, that he's willing to suffer the full penalty of sin so that would no longer be our responsibility to pay, but instead we have the joy of knowing that we are your beloved and that we have no fear of ever hearing those, those terrifying words, I never knew you. Oh God, help us to believe that you do know us because of what your son Jesus has done for us. Oh God, I pray that you would enable us to be people who will not pursue the creaturely comforts of this world, but instead we will chase after the creator king who is the lover of our hearts and the bridegroom of the beloved church, the the bride of Christ. Help us to live this out now, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.